Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 191 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I hang out with historian and cocktail author Cecilia Tishy from Vanderbilt University. She's here to tell us all about the Gilded Age, the people and technologies that created it, and the cocktail culture that emerged during this era of rapid technological change. She's celebrating the launch of her new book, Gilded Age Cocktails, History, Lore, and Recipes from America's Golden Age. But before you start sending telegraphs to all your friends and booking your tickets on the Titanic, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured drink is the Bronx Cocktail. To make it, you'll need two ounces of London Dry Gin, one ounce of orange juice, roughly a third of an ounce of Italian, a.k.a. sweet vermouth, and roughly a third of an ounce of French, a.k.a. dry vermouth. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake vigorously until all ingredients are chilled and properly diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and enjoy. This recipe is probably not exactly the measurements used to make the original Bronx cocktail. We'll get to that in a second, but just so you know the conversions I was aiming for, I had to convert jiggers and dashes two ounces here. A jigger is generally converted to about one and a half ounces and a dash is anyone's guess. So when this recipe called for two jiggers or three full ounces of gin and a dash each of sweet and dry vermouth, you can see why I made a few little tweaks to adjust the formulation for the modern palate. The Bronx cocktail was invented by bartender Johnny Solon at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York around the turn of the century. According to Cecilia Tishy, quote, Solon was mixing a popular cocktail, the duplex, when a head waiter at the hotel leaned across the bar and issued a challenge. Why don't you get up a new cocktail, asked the tempter, in the tones of a dare. I have a customer who says you can't do it. Can't I, replied Solon, who finished the duplex and prepared to meet the challenge, starting with the equivalent of two jiggers of Gordon gin poured into a mixing glass. He then filled the jigger with orange juice so that it made one-third orange juice and two-thirds gin. He added a dash each of Italian and French vermouths and shook the thing up. Solon swore he did not taste the result, but immediately poured it into a cocktail glass and handed it to his challenger, who downed the drink whole. By God... You've really got something new, he exclaimed. A big hit. End quote. Now, anytime I see orange juice in a cocktail, I immediately start thinking about Harvey's wall banger and sexes on beaches. Not exactly the pinnacle of cocktail culture, but in the Bronx cocktail, you've got very different acid and sugar profiles from three different mixers playing against the dry botanical London dry gin, which makes the Bronx cocktail a drink that is truly greater than the sum of its parts. So now that you got yourself a true Gilded Age cocktail, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating conversation with author and historian Cecilia Tishy, some of the topics we discuss include what the Gilded Age is and why this time period was so important not only for cocktail culture, but also in laying the groundwork for the seismic events that would follow in the early 20th century. 
how Gilded Age Cocktails was conceived, and, spoiler alert, it may have happened over the course of a few drinks. We talk about the equine origins of the word cocktail and its interesting ties to concepts like genetic pedigree and mongrel or mixed components. We consider the influence of universities, private clubs, and transatlantic travel on the spread and cross-pollination of cocktail styles and recipes across continents. We explore what the Gilded Age has in common with today's world of social media and rapid tech innovation. We admire the wardrobe and style of the original cocktail influencer, Jerry Thomas, and much, much more. Speaking with Cecilia honestly reminded me of conversations I've had with some of my favorite college professors. She lives and breathes this stuff, and there's an incredible energy to enjoy when you're in a room with someone who can articulate complicated ideas with such nuance and precision. We'll have links over on the show notes page that you can follow to pick up your copy of Gilded Age Cocktails, and I'm also going to link to Cecilia's Wikipedia page so that you can explore some of her other books, and she's got a lot of them. But for now, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with author, historian, and cultural scholar, Cecilia Tishy. Cecilia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for Modern Bar Cart. Glad to be here. All right. So before we jump in and start talking about Gilded Age cocktails, can you just give our listeners a nice little introduction and short bio about you? All right. In short, Cecilia Tishy, a longtime interest in history and American culture and how culture and historical events kind of intertwine, meld each other. And I've done Uh, by now quite a few books, uh, most recently in the Gilded Age, on Jack London, on the Progressive Era, and we are in a new Gilded Age. If you Google Gilded Age, chances are you get something from the late 20th, early 21st century. So in our rearview mirror, we're back in the first Gilded Age. It is so fascinating. And my, my published work, my classroom work, my lectures and teaching have been centered in, in that era. But I like to take the broad view of American history as we've evolved uh, from, the, from the 1700s, even the 1600s, when uh, the Pilgrims and Puritans came over and they were drinking beer because the water was dodgy. Uh, and so we have a long history in this country of uh, libations, uh, and they've all evolved. And I've taken an interest in the culture and how it, and how it moves and how we all move in it. There's a, there's a sentence that I committed to memory. Let me just put it out there. We live in history, and history lives in us. That's worth some thinking. Okay. Yeah, certainly. And I'm very excited to, in this interview, delve into some of the echoes that that we experience, right? The, these historical echoes where, you know, it's very, it's very easy for us to look forward to the future uh, and very tempting, certainly. Uh, humans like to be able to predict things. Uh, but I think it's it's perhaps more instructive to look to the past and and to and to do a little bit of comparing and contrasting uh, of ourselves and our our current situation against maybe similar situations that may have come before us. So I'm very excited for this. Um, and I wanted to 
just talk a little bit about the book itself as a project. When did this project come to you? Uh, was it an idea that you had? Did somebody bring it to you and say, hey, is this something that you could do for us? Just tell us the story of the book from its inception to now. Will do. Well, this book was a follow-up from a previous book titled, What Would Mrs. Astor Do? The mores and ethics of the first Gilded Age when Mrs. Astor, Mrs. William Backhouse Astor Jr., presided over New York society. And so I had, I had delved into when could you ride in Central Park and what was a lady's side saddle to be about? And Mrs. Astor's ball on the second, uh, I'm sorry, the last Monday night in January. And if you were invited, you were in. And if you weren't, you pretended that a distant relative had an illness and you must travel. So from that era, which was so uh, energetic in the development of new technologies, the railroads, electricity, the telephone, um, and now we're in this era of digital transformation. Still a little stumbling with it as, as telephone calls drop. Uh, but who would go back uh, to the previous era of the, say, the typewriter, clack, 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 um, and now with the electronic keyboard and being able, social media, um, and in the, in the first Gilded Age, Social media was the railroad, really, and the telegraph, uh, and the telephone. So we're in another period of rapid technological change that's, that's bringing back to us uh, a reformulation of manners. For example, at today's dinner parties, sometimes people agree, the guests, the hosts, to put their cell phones uh, out of sight, to turn them off during dinner. This is new because just a short time ago, everybody sits down, the server is at the elbows, and everybody's on their phones, and, and still today. So what was good conduct? What was social conduct? How could we be with one another? Back then, uh, in from civil, we're talking from Civil War up to World War I. We're talking about a half century of very rapid change. Um, here's one example in addition. Indoor plumbing. Um, what a revolution for housing to be fitted out with real bathrooms, with tubs, with hot and cold running water. It was like a miracle. Well, we're in such a time of change right now. Cables being strung for, for new um, internet, for streaming. This is, we're all figuring it out just as back then, from about 1870 into 1914, the same kind of restless energy and creative energy. And let's mention, it was Mark Twain with a collaborating writer, Charles Dudley Warner, who wrote a very, the two of them, long novel called The Gilded Age. Other names for that period were the Age of Energy, the Age of Steel and Steam, but the name that stuck is The Gilded Age. All that flash, all that sparkle, 
and now we're in a second Gilded Age, uh, and once again, uh, it's not the same, but it but it reignites the energies, certain uncertainties, uh, and uh, a look to the future. And as you're saying, Eric, we also need to revisit the past to see that the last chapter um, is something like the chapter we're in right now. Hmm. Mm, I love that. I, I like the impulse to to go back and and assign to the Gilded Age the first age of social media, where we can, you know, the, the definition of a quote unquote instantaneous communication seems like one that has a little bit of room for interpretation because to get news, you know, from a telegraph back in the late eighteen hundreds certainly must have felt the way that we feel exchanging direct messages or text messages on our smartphones today. There is certainly uh, a similarity there, at least with respect to what came before it. And um, Absolutely. Now, now, what I realize also is you asked me, where did this Gilded Age cocktails book come from? Uh, and I didn't fully answer. So let me, let me just say, at, uh, at dinner in Tarrytown, New York, with my literary agent, uh, and we were talking about the Mrs. Astor uh, book, What Would Mrs. Astor Do? And we were enjoying cocktails and uh, sort of deciding, is yours too sweet? I think mine's a little salty. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, and then it dawned on both of us. The Mrs. Astor book didn't have quite enough about cocktails. It had champagne. It had wines. But what about cocktails? Isn't there room for a book on the cocktails of the Gilded Age? Who drank them and when and where and what was in them? And so um, I set off on that romp. uh, And Deirdre, my agent, Deirdre Mullane, uh, who is so smart about these things, she got in touch with uh, the editor at New York University Press. And they had a special series going. And they signed it up. And I was I was off on a new, uh, call it a romp, call it an adventure. It's been fun. Yeah, I I think one of the things that really struck me as I was reading through the copy that you sent me was how you use your previous research about the lives of these incredibly prominent Americans and the high societies and circles that they ran in to color our understanding of cocktail culture at that time. Because I think what's very important to keep in mind here is that cocktail culture now and back in the Gilded Age is something primarily enjoyed by people of means. Uh, You know, today we might be enjoying a slight democratization of the cocktail world, but certainly back during that time, cocktails were almost always in in the way that we think of them now with with the nice crystal glassware with the you know the parties uh enjoyed by people of intense means and and this is the first time i'm really seeing that connection drawn so intimately there's always reference you know i've heard references to some of these clubs and societies but you deal with them very directly in this book and especially with some of the incredibly supercharged people like the asters for example so um that, that's something that I'm really interested in. Uh, can, can you, I guess, explain why the Gilded Age was such a great time to be drinking cocktails? 
That's a terrific issue and question. The people of means who were the experimenters, the connoisseurs of the new cocktails. Um, Let's remember a lot of immigrants were in the country. They would... um, brew their own beer, distill their, their wines. Um, as for whiskeys, there's a phrase, barrel house whiskey, the cheapest hooch. Meanwhile, at the upper end, and this is an age of, of course, of uh, steam ships, sail and steam both, uh, so that whiskeys and fine liqueurs and wines were, were imported, brought from the Scottish Highlands, uh, from, from France, from the Champagne country. And, and so uh, an experimental um, moment uh, took place just as all these new technological inventions were, were rapidly uh, ascending. The Vanderbilts, uh, the sons of the original Commodore, were the first to electrify their houses in Manhattan. And so those at the top of the wealth and social um, status scheme platforms uh, were able to to experiment and wanted to experiment with the cocktails that were were being slowly offered their way. Now, let's remember, Eric, that this was a gentleman's um, official um, set-aside. Ladies, the ladies, I'm not talking about women, I'm talking about wealthy ladies. They drank a good deal of champagne. They drank punch. They enjoyed liqueurs, um, sometimes with cigarettes even. Uh, but a, a whiskey drink, um, something from the distillery, that was the province of the gentleman. Uh, and we know, and I know you and I are going to talk about this later on, and anybody who writes about the history of drinking in America will credit Professor Jerry Thomas for his inventive combinations of of whiskeys and fruits and bitters um, and ice. Uh, And after all, who was able to afford ice, which was uh, a preservative for perishables, of course, cut from, from lakes and rivers in the winter, stored in ice houses, even shipped as far away as, as from to India. But um, who had ice in their homes? Who had an ice box? Not the poor. Uh, the laborers, those families, those enormous families uh, in the tenements, no, uh, in the vast kitchens uh, in Manhattan, in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, increasingly in Chicago, and in Knob Hill and San Francisco. There were the ice boxes uh, with those crystal clear uh, blocks and cubes. And from the 1870s, of all places, it was in New Orleans that ice plants, the, f- the freezing of water uh, with the help of ammonia uh, in, in factories could produce crystal clear ice. 
Mark Twain commented on this uh, in his book on the Mississippi, uh, that ice in the South, uh, but in in the homes of the wealthy, and in the in the leisurely resorts of the wealthy. After all, who had the time to experiment with a cocktail? Not the laborer, um, let's say, in the packing houses in Chicago uh, or in the, in the uh, dye works uh, in New York, laborers who worked 10, 12, 16 hours a day uh, and had to, um, to come right back when the foreman says, I expect you at whatever early morning time. So it was the, the business class, the wealthy class, uh, that, that had the, both the leisure and also the hour or two to talk business over the cocktail, let's say at the Hoffman House or at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel uh, Bar, where, um, where very cleverly the manager of the hotel, a man named George Bolt, who was the most brilliant hotel manager, he set up a bar when the Waldorf Astoria uh, combined, the two hotels. He put a ticker tape in a corner, and he... Um, arranged for sculptures of bears and bulls to be at each end of the bar and a little lamb uh, at the center. Where did the businessmen go from Wall Street? And these were the high flyers. They went to the Waldorf Astoria bar after, after the stock exchange closed, and they conducted business right there at the bar, enjoying cocktails all the while. So we see that, that it was the upper echelon of society uh, that experimented with the, with the new uh, combinations that the clever bartenders like Jerry Thomas, um, like Henry Ramos down in New Orleans, uh, and like, and I, I can't remember the name, but in San Francisco on Montgomery Street, the Pisco Sours uh, were the, the, the favorites. And these were the, were the very wealthy movers and shakers of their era, and they were listening to the cocktail shaker while they uh, conducted business. Um, so, yes, the idea of the cocktail did filter down um, steadily and gradually, but there was a real line between those of means and those who are, to be frank, toiling for their daily bread um, in an America of the first Gilded Age. Mm. I love, first of all, the map that you kind of laid out before us as you were describing who and where clear ice was available uh, during the late 1800s. And uh, if anyone's ever lived near a lake in an area where it freezes, you, you know that as that lake freezes, the ice on top is indeed crystal clear. Uh, because only when you freeze something solid do the gases and the dissolved aqueous minerals aggregate towards the middle and bottom of the cube. So <laughs> there's this just wonderful affordance of lake cut ice that it was crystal clear. Uh, and, and so, you know, as you describe that, you listed New York City, Chicago, New Orleans, San Francisco, cities that today still maintain their status as the pinnacle of cocktail culture in the United States. And, and so 
it's kind of it's kind of neat to see where that comes from first of all and then you know to your point about people having the time to experiment and that uh, that, that energy that creative force to experiment it makes me think back. It makes me think of the Gilded Age as actually an age of iteration on what is, had come before it. Because when we think of the cocktail, we have this definition, spirits, sugar, water, bitters. And we also have a history of commerce that up until the age of steam, largely was colonial powers hopping from islands or Asian or South American places grabbing up the strange and wonderful spices or produce that was there. And then we see these developments like grog and punch for the British Navy, for example, that allowed them to, you know, prevent their teeth and fingernails from falling out due to scurvy. And these were the precursors to the cocktail. Slings, toddies, these all incorporated the citrus and spices of that time. Then we have the formalization of the cocktail in the old-fashioned, the Manhattan, the Martini. And then as the Gilded Age progresses, as you're describing these are the folks who are now able to start bringing in other, instead of commodity items, perhaps luxury items, right? These strange liqueurs and cordials from mainland Europe, the as you mentioned, the Highland Scotch whiskeys. And, and here is where we see what I come to understand as, quote, pre-prohibition age cocktails. And I think there's a really important distinction to draw there between the Gilded Age or pre-Prohibition cocktails and, of course, the Prohibition Age cocktails. In fact, I was listening recently to uh, a podcast with Dave Wondrich and Noah Rothbaum, uh, Life Behind Bars, and, and they, they said that people tend to confuse these two. So I, I thought it might be important for us to draw that distinction between the pre-Prohibition Age cocktails, which are, the uh, as you mentioned, the province of your book, and the Prohibition Age cocktails, which enjoyed a different type of notoriety and also some slightly different constraints. Would you agree? I totally agree. You are so right. Uh, the, the, the Prohibition period uh, was, by all accounts, and, and I know Wondrich and Philip Green and, and William Grimes, Wayne Curtis, every, every uh, uh, historian of the cocktail, uh, comments on the debasement of taste during Prohibition. Uh, the fact that very soon uh, after the Volstead Act took, took hold, um, very soon the syndicates uh, crime syndicates took over the the cocktail, the drink business, the the business of alcohol, beer, wine, uh, distilled liquors, all of it. What they did so uh, readily was cut the fine liquors that had been shipped, bottled in bond, aged from the Scottish Highlands, uh, from Ireland. Uh, and before these these fine cases uh, could go into the into the uh, cabinets and and cellars uh, of the the wealthy, the syndicates cut and diluted uh, these liquors and rebottled them. There was one uh, instance description. I think it's Asbury who's done uh, so much about the underworld, the demi monde of uh, of New York and and the criminals. Um, uh, they would empty empty the let's say the um, 
the, the fine scotch, empty it out, cut it with um, denatured alcohol, maybe add some caramel coloring, maybe add some iodine. And then that by now they had maybe 10 or 15 times the quantity of one-fifth. And they would re-bottle because they had bottles, they had seals, all counterfeit. They would cork, they would seal, and then they would even and label. And they would, so here was Hag, here was a bottle of pinch, it looked just right. They would dunk it in a bath of salt water to fade the label, to persuade the buyer that indeed uh, coming over on the ocean, this bottle had been uh, had been dunked in the in the in the Atlantic. Uh, so. The, the result of all this dilution, all this um, confection, so to speak, making up denatured alcohol. So if you didn't have something bottled in bond to dilute and cut, uh, maybe you had um, some, some tank uh, of denatured alcohol, perfectly legal, and you could add um, your colorings, your flavorings. Creosote was a favorite. Uh, dark caramel, uh, and people didn't know that the cocktail they ordered at a speakeasy uh, had no relation to the pre-prohibition cocktail. Um, um, one of the uh, fashion mavens, Diana Vreeland of Vogue magazine, said in a quip, People went into the bathroom and drank Listerine. They drank anything they could get their hands on. She felt that prohibition was a time when people wanted a kick. Before that, in the Gilded Age, people wanted to savor the newly invented possibility. What was the Bronx? How should the Manhattan taste? Uh, now, by the time prohibition comes along, we find Sinclair Lewis's character, Babbitt, in a book by that name, um, going to the speakeasy. He gets a quart of gin. Uh, he mixes it with some orange juice. He tastes it, and he says, ah, it's like a Manhattan, or maybe it's like a Bronx. Well, anybody who knows cocktails knows that those two don't taste anything alike. What Sinclair Lewis is really saying is that prohibition has ruined the palate for the authentic cocktail, how it should taste because of what um, uh, it was composed of. So dial it back to the Gilded Age, and we have really a, a splendid era of cocktails. And uh, thanks to Albert Crockett, um, Albert S. Crockett, uh, who lived through the Gilded Age well into the era of Prohibition and wrote, uh, compiled, the old Waldorf bar book, uh, published in uh, 1931 and another one in, in uh, 30, 33 or 4, uh, just as Prohibition ended. But Crockett was able to chronicle the contents of the of the Gilded Age cocktails, and thank heavens that he did that because, because those compounds are true to what the cocktails should be, should have been. And now, recently, in our new Gilded Age, and you know this, we all know this so well, for the last maybe, maybe 20 years, the craft cocktails have tried to recapture 
the sense of a Gilded Age cocktail, not debased, not to just be knocked down fast, but to be savored, to be enjoyed visually as well as, as on, the, on the palate. As you spoke about prohibition, it occurred to me what a force certain massive events, and certainly prohibition is, is, is a massive event in and of itself, but it's also closely tied to things like world wars and larger movements like uh, temperance. Uh, it, it, just, it just strikes me how, how, how much forgetting culturally those large events can, can initiate, as you were describing Babbitt and his uh, <laughs> complete ignorance of these, these cocktails and what they would have tasted like just a, just a, a decade or so before. Um, it, it's very striking. It's, you're so, it's so true. You know, we could say, who wants to imagine, reimagine hard times are we really going to want to be thinking about COVID uh, two or three years from now? Won't we prefer to say, let's put it behind us? But you're absolutely right. In the Gilded Age, did people want to talk about uh, the Civil War? And in fact, uh, it was noted that at a social gathering, let's say at Saratoga, uh, upstate New York, uh, summer uh, leisure, leisure and watering hole and and supposedly a health spa, but really a social gathering for Gilded Age um, high society. Uh, if a guest started to natter on about, say, the Battle of Nashville um, or, or what Grant and Lee um, were up to, that person was not invited to the next gathering. Nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. It was too painful. So similar here, when we come into the Gilded Age, um, who would, who would, who, and for, f further from that, who would want to talk about the, the, pan the pandemic of the influenza uh, of, of 1918? Um, uh, or World War I. Um, uh, all all our, our major writers, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Dos Passos, uh, they, they included scenes of, of war and carnage, uh, but uh, they were not up to reliving those moments and when they enjoyed cocktails, say, at, at Harry's Bar or at a cafe in Paris or at Nice, or wherever they were, um, New York, Key West. <laughs> so, but, so dial back to the Gilded Age. Nobody wanted to talk about the war. And even further back, I don't think they wanted to talk about Johnny Appleseed really being the, the uh, founder of, of uh, Applejack distilled uh, whiskeys in our country, or... Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, as a drunkard, uh, uh, denounced in, uh, in, by politicians, denounced even by um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who in his novel, so popular, this is just before the Gilded Age, uh, The House of the Seven Gables, and he, he wished to be, to be cursed those who appreciated liquor. Um, because they were immoral, they were debauched. So as we come up into the Gilded Age, who wants to think about those bad old days? Um, let's enjoy 
the present, let's see what's new uh, at this wonderful bar, wherever that bar might be, and in clubs. The Pendennis Club uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, where Tom Bullock, this legendary black bartender, was often mixing his juleps. Uh, and in St. Louis, where he went to mix juleps, and he wrote a bar book himself. So, so we had, suddenly, we had new authors. There was Jerry Thomas uh, compiling his, his cocktail book. There was Tom Bullock, also, 19, not till 1917. Uh, but we had a library building of current new combinations. And uh, it, was, it began to be said that, that some bartenders should rely on the existing library and not try to outdo their, uh, their bartending predecessors because they were, they, were, um, they were going too far. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. What I'd like to just quickly pause on before we maybe talk about some of these um, social clubs and uh, university clubs is uh, the definition of the cocktail that, that you put forth in, in the first chapter of your book, because I have a feeling that many of our listeners will be familiar with Dave Wondrich's uh, cocktail etymology story with uh, with the horse and the ginger and uh, all of the all of the various connotations associated with that, but but you put forth a, a, a different definition, so I'd love if you could maybe talk our listeners through that. Well, glad to do it, but but let me also uh, commend um, uh, Wondrich's work. Uh, that book of his, Imbibe, better be the Imbible on anybody's uh, shelf who plans to think about writing about cocktails. Um, also, Philip Green. I mean, they're the whole, you know, the whole list of these guys. Um, they're terrific. But what made sense, most sense to me, in relation to the naming of the cocktail, uh, is the history of, in a sense, agriculture of livestock, of the breeding of livestock, um, for that matter, of of plant breeding, of grafting. Um, twigs onto onto uh, stronger stock to produce better apples. Well, of breeding uh, cattle, of breeding horses, and the question, and it's by gosh, it's just come up as we've had the Kentucky Derby just a few days ago, and the controversy that comes of that. What is the thoroughbred, and what, contrary to the thoroughbred? might be a horse looking good, but not a purebred, not a thoroughbred. How to distinguish one from the other. There was a lot at stake. Um, for one thing, commercial value. Um, what, does a, what does a thoroughbred fetch in the market? And what a mixed breed, and how can you tell well, the one part of the animal that could easily, visually, uh, be distinguished from another would be the tail. Cocked uh, would be nothing to do with a rooster, everything to do with cutting part of the tail of an impure horse. 
that is, a horse that was not a thoroughbred, to distinguish it from its fellow horse that was so much more valuable. So the cocked horse would have its tail visibly whacked. If we move over to whiskey drinks, um, and we know, we've just talked about the impurity deliberately um, uh, created during Prohibition. Well, let's dial it back to a bar room, maybe, I don't know, out west, the saloon tradition. Um, how, would the, how would the good silver dollar to purchase a, a drink or even a bottle, how would it be known that what was poured out was the real thing? How would it be known that that drink wasn't impure as a, as a non-thoroughbred horse would be impure? Um, if you paid for your whiskey, you wanted it straight. You didn't want it to be cocktailed like that horse that wasn't the pure, real thing. So it made a lot of sense to me, Eric, that that, that would be how cocktails got their name. Now, when did the pure whiskey drink become a more pleasurable sip? Uh, I almost hesitate imagining. We don't know who first introduced ice. Um, a water drink was a sham, impure, cocked. But when a, when a chip of ice introduced to a glass of whiskey cooled it, maybe the ice chimed against the glass if the glassware had some quality. And it was pleasing to the palate. And that, I am sure, was the first of the, of the cocktail that could be enjoyed and approved of. And that uh, ice, I think, led the way to other um, combinations that were regarded not as, as impure, not as cheats um, or frauds, but welcome beverages that opened up a whole array, a rainbow of, of new possibilities. So I think going back, what made the most sense to me was the tradition of, um, of, from agriculture um, moving into the barroom. And that's what I, what I chose. That's the story that I chose to tell. Also, the cocktail, and I quoted this from another source, it befuddles the mind, uh, as, of course, intoxicating liquors might do. Mm. Well, I do like that both yours and Wondrich's definition involve horses. That seems to be important. And obviously, you know, as you mentioned, the Kentucky Derby, horse racing has been uh, an important leisure pastime for for the the upper echelons of society for a long time so it seems like there's there's certainly a lot to be said for that and 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 to me when i when i hear when i hear the practice of, of cutting the tail it, it almost uh 
reminds me of another word, docked. You know, another word to say that is a docked tail, a cocktail. Exactly so. Exactly so. Docked, cocked. Um, um, and maybe, probably a linguist would be able to tell us exactly where, you know, in the inflection of speech in certain, in certain areas, docked was the word and cocked was the word elsewhere, probably two counties over, um, that sort of thing. Okay, so maybe you need, maybe the next, the next uh, project for somebody will be a linguist writing about cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. And one other thing that I want to really draw people's attention to that that came out of of, uh, your description of of the word cocktail and, and how the word and the drink evolved perhaps together is this idea of interbreeding, between ingredients of transmogrification, right? The Gilded Age to me, you know, I think of works like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, this this obsession with transformation. Uh, I think of Sherlock Holmes. I've, I've recently been listening to a lot of Sherlock Holmes audiobooks, and to me, especially if anyone is interested in watching some of the movies with Robert Downey Jr., uh, I, I think they do a marvelous job probably not accurately, but certainly overplaying and overbilling some of the crazy technology and and transformation obsession during the Gilded Age. So I, I think that, you know, although in one respect, the bastardization of a straight shot or a straight bottle of whiskey may have in a saloon on the frontier where life was very utilitarian seemed like a bad thing. However, I do like the slippery slope, the avalanche, the pebble that started the avalanche, perhaps, that comes just as you described, when maybe just adding a chip of ice and suddenly hearing that ice clink against the glass and then tasting how that ice cools and also opens up the spirit in the glass, suddenly, oh, well, maybe this ice isn't such a bad thing. Maybe, well, what else can we do? with this and suddenly we see what was previously viewed as impure or not utilitarian becomes something that is suddenly intriguing and filled with possibilities and so i really do enjoy uh how quickly we're able to descend down that slippery slope and suddenly be grabbing bottles from all over the world peace goes from south america and liqueurs from europe and all of a sudden we have not just the beginning of tra- of a tradition, but the beginning of a veritable craze. 
you're you're verging on wanting to to talk about, I suspect, uh, the distinction between certain distilled liquors, and I'm saying liquor, not liqueur, but liquors that ought not to be come cocktail basics. Um, let's think of of the finest, even to this moment, um, I don't know whether I can do a brand here, but let's say Pappy Van Winkle. Let's say we've each got a bottle of Pappy um, right before us. Would we want to make a cocktail out of it? Absolutely not. It is a whiskey to be very carefully savored, no ice, no fruit, no garnish, no bitters, stop it. Enjoy it, pour yourself an inch, enjoy it over a serious um, hour or hour and a half. So separating those very fine liquors uh, from, from perfectly good ones that lend themselves to the, to the um, outlay of, of fruits and bitters and other, other ingredients that produce a cocktail, a fine cocktail. Um, a dog, uh, once <laughs> George Bolt, again, back to that manager of the, of the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel, Bolt was so flummoxed to see uh, Westerners come in, as you were referring to, from the, from the open range or the saloons, or maybe they were copper kings and, and had made vast fortunes, and they came in in their boots and their wide-brimmed hats, uh, and they said, I want some of that liqueur. And the bartender would produce perhaps Cointreau Benedictine, and the, the swaggering Westerner would say, I'm a real he-man I am, and when I want a drink, I want a real drink. Bring me a, a real, bring me the bottle, uh, not a thimble-sized glass. Bring me a big, tall glass, maybe ice, um, and, and I want that bottle. Now, <laughs> the profits from all those bottles and cases of liqueurs were just um, ample, but to see what ought to be sipped uh, in, in small quantities, um, poured in vast quantities, and gulped down, uh, it made George Bolt gulp. He didn't like it at all, uh, but as a, as a uh, courteous manager, he did what the customer wanted him to do. So we're talking really about the, co the cocktail, the basis of the cocktail, what gin would that be? What whiskey might that be? Uh, but set aside the finest as if they were liqueurs and sip them slowly. Mm, mm. I like that distinction a lot. And I think it, I think if you, if you ride that distinction out, you can trace a lot of important cocktail decisions and, or just drinking decisions in general through the time, through the, through the decades and ages between the Gilded Age and now. Um, but er, so earlier in our conversation, you were mentioning some of the social circles and some of the, the social, um, I guess, motivators 
in, in terms of uh, who's who, who wants to be seen at what parties. Uh, and I wanted to maybe pivot now to, to talk about the role that private clubs and universities had in the spread of cocktail culture. Because if we're looking at a family tree or if we're trying to trace who knows whom and, and the relationships, who was writing letters to whom, sending telegraphs to whom, uh, the university and the private club seem to be places where those networks are particularly dense and intertwined. So I'm wondering if you can maybe give us a overview of the impact that some of these cultures had on the cocktail scene during the, the Gilded Age. Absolutely. I mean, you've 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 hit it right. The 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 social scene, the interlocking, uh, what the social critic Thorsten Veblen called the interlocking directorate, and he was talking about corporations in which in which boards were um, swapped around. The same figures would show up on the different boards. Well, the same, and this is gentlemen. Remember, this is um, uh, ladies had circles, but men had clubs. Uh, and if we start on the far west coast there's there's the bohemian club uh, that's still to this day as both a clubhouse and meets annually these gentlemen uh, in the bohemian grove or redwood groves uh, outside san francisco uh, some guests invited jack london was invited back in the day uh, but he was invited by um, the gentlemen of wealth uh, in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, move up to Virginia City, which was the, the silver boom city uh, in Nevada, and the Washoe Club uh, was, was flourishing. Again, the silver kings, the mining um, moguls, would be members only of that club enjoying. And moving, moving into Philadelphia, to New York, New York City, the Union Club, the Union League Club, um, the Cosmos Club in D.C. Now, why join a club? Like-minded gentlemen who had something to say to one another, whose references need not be explained to one another, but perhaps um, enjoying their membership would like to, to, um, to include in their fellowship the insignia uh, of the club, perhaps a necktie, perhaps cufflinks, even studs uh, that had been cast uh, with the insignia of the club, the club itself, perhaps showing a medallion or a crest uh, at its portals. Um, and so along with all these club memberships, these fellowships, uh, would be the cocktail uh, combined uh, of ingredients specific to that club. So there were bohemian cocktails, and uh, as you see in my book, Gilded Age Cocktails, uh, what we now think of as the Ivy League, um, the Harvard cocktail, the Yale cocktail, the Brown cocktail, um, the, the uh, University of Pennsylvania cocktail, uh, each one different, 
uh, each one compounded and at reunions, served and, and toasted. Glad to see you, old fellow, and how are you doing? So good to be here. And bearing in mind, the railroads uh, readily took the, the alumni from wherever they were living right into the city. And after the first, of, uh, first years of the 20th century, we had the horseless carriages becoming the motor cars uh, and roadways. Uh, and so the clubs with their own insignias included their own cocktails. Uh, and each one is different. Uh, we think of back to uh, Theodore Roosevelt in his, in his years at Harvard, and he wrote extensively to his mother of what his day might be. Uh, he didn't tell her that he had um, uh, gone across the river to quaff a shandygraff, which was a, a combination of, of beer uh, and, uh, and a, perhaps a ginger ale, but, but the Harvard boys often did exactly that. Nor did um, Clarence Day, who was at Yale um, and who spent so much money uh, on his club ties and his socks and his cufflinks and, told, and had to tell his father that he had spent all his allowance, but he didn't tell what he had confessed later in his memoir, that he went into, the, into New Haven and ordered cocktails from the Hubline brothers uh, who mixed such delectable drinks uh, for him. And Hubline, as we know, um, the Hubline brothers realized they could pre-mix great batches of cocktails and market them. And so Hubline cocktails became a national distribution uh, right, into, um, right into the Roaring Twenties and on into uh, the, um, the mid-century modern uh, era. Uh, just pour over ice, and there you have it. So yes, the clubs, along with their their probably their secret handshakes um, and their maybe their songs. I don't know. I didn't come across any songs, but they would have their special cocktails and they would toast one another with those cocktails. I love that, especially in the wake of the coronavirus, we have all these pre-bottled cocktails coming out. And uh, if you look through my email inbox and read some of the PR emails that I receive, uh, these folks certainly don't think that they're coming from a tradition that's over a century old. Uh, they think that they are the inventors and, and sole, uh, sole arbiters of the, of the, the bottled cocktail. But, uh, what we're learning here is that's just simply not the case. Um, you know, another, another thing that I will add is that it's, it's not just universities, of course. Uh, you mentioned a number of other private clubs, uh, at cities throughout the country and, uh, a couple of cocktails, that well, one is a punch, one's a cocktail. Of course, um, there's the Philadelphia Fish House Punch, which uh, was developed at a private club uh, on the Skugel. And then uh, I believe the Clover Club is also another cocktail that that results from a private club. So uh, there, it, it's funny if you, if you were to, I suppose, create some sort of definitive list of pre-prohibition cocktails there would be a non-trivial percentage of those cocktails, maybe not the ones that are at the absolute 
top of popularity today, like the old fashioned, the Manhattan, the martini, but certainly the next group of cocktails that are known by name and by ingredients to us contemporary drinkers, a non-trivial percentage of those could be attributed to private clubs or universities. Would that be somewhat accurate? That sounds exactly right. Um, you know, we have a you know, we sort of share the wealth. Um, but what's what's in that? I, I I never went to Yale or never went to. I wasn't at Brown. Is that a Brown cocktail you're making? Let me try that. Uh, I'd like to, um, as your guest, uh, I'd like to make some of those myself. Um, take them to my friends at the Rotary Club one day. Uh, not at the Rotary meeting, of course, but when we when we gather, uh, maybe after the meeting. That sort of thing. So it's it's um. It's, you know, there's this wonderful moment in the, uh, the Devil Wears Prada when the Meryl Streep character says uh, to the upstart assistant who has just snickered at the idea of fashion, she says, fashion starts right here. That color you're wearing on that pilly sweater you've got on today started here a few years ago it started in Couturier. It started at the Paris Fashion Annual uh, and perhaps New York. And it filtered down to the Walmart sort of store where you do your shopping. But this fashion that starts in exclusivity finds its democratization over some period of time so that the exclusive drink from a club, club only, becomes very well known later on. How many years, we don't know. Uh, but as you indicate, uh, the, 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 the fish house punch that started in a private club now becomes something on many menus and at many bars throughout the Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly echoes of that today in what we might call modern classic cocktails, the penicillin that was invented in milk and honey in New York. Uh, now, that is a drink that you could very easily see on menus at craft cocktail bars across the country, and yet, originally, it was conceived in a single place at a very important point in time during the cocktail renaissance. So, uh, again, another echo that we're seeing here. And one point I do want to make before we move on, we sort of just started talking about the Gilded Age and about cocktails, and we've been we've been going pretty, pretty hard and fast here. But one thing I, I want to point out about the structure of your book is that it's not just a book explaining the Gilded Age. It's, it's also a book that, in addition to uh, some of these quotes that you've found through through painstaking research and experience, you know, uh, studying these these influential figures for your other books, you also have recipes so that we can understand not only you know the context in which these drinks were consumed, but also the constituents of the drink. So I wouldn't call Gilded Age cocktails a recipe book as such, but for people who are interested in learning more about what we're talking about, these cocktails are seeded through the various chapters to be able to put the ingredients and the formulation of these cocktails in relief of the people and context in which they were consumed. So I, th I wanted to make that point before we moved on. Yeah, th thank you. Yes, the recipes are here. It was pointed out to me that I should point out uh, that the Gilded Age imbibers had something of a sweet tooth 
that uh, in in modern taste uh, might sound might feel a little too sweet uh, that that the proportions are the proportions of that era so that to mix up um, uh, some of the recipes in my book uh, is to sort of take a sample from history and looking at those at those ingredients, the quantities, uh, those who, for instance, prefer the martini in which the dry vermouth is waved over the glass, will find serious quantities of vermouth uh, recommended. So if you want to see, uh, uh, if you want to taste what the Gilded Age tasted, try the recipes, but by all means, look at the recipes and see how they, they contrast to what is currently the fashionable drink. Well, I think it might be reasonable to speculate that uh, due to the demand for cocktails relative to the availability of ice at that time, it may very well be that these cocktails that were shaken or stirred may not have been shaken or stirred to the extent that they are today, uh, which means that if they were a little bit warmer, a little bit less diluted, then the presence of more sugar indeed made them more palatable at the time when they were being created. Now, I can't say that for certain, and there are obviously uh, some very notable exceptions. You, you, you mentioned Ramos and the notorious gin fizz, which was shaken for minutes on end. So certainly, I'm not, I'm not claiming that this is the answer and this, is, this, is, this, solve, this squares the circle of, of why recipes designed in the Gilded Age might not meet our sensibilities today, but it's certainly something to consider. And, and since we're on the topic of, you know, communicating across time, I thought a nice way to wrap up this interview uh, before we jumped into the lightning round questions might be to consider communica communications and uh, I guess the the movement of ideas across space, with that space being primarily the Atlantic Ocean. We mentioned ocean liners back then. Certainly, uh, one of the important events toward the end of the Gilded Age was the sinking of the Titanic. Um, can can you speak a little bit about the cross pollination of ideas and the the influence, the the mutual influence that the United States and Europe had on each other, especially? relative to cocktails during the Gilded Age. Certainly, and, and first, your, th your theory uh, of the palate of the Gilded Age uh, in, a sh in a, a shaker that is not shaken so vigorously, um, a slightly less chilled uh, cocktail that might sweeten uh, on, in the mouth, uh, that's a very important point, a good theory. Uh, let me just uh, just put this in. If, if you visit um, a museum uh, of furniture, decorative arts of the late 19th century, the Gilded Age, you will still see a safe, a locked compartment that contained the sugar because it was often in a loaf and it was somewhat scarce. Uh, sugar wasn't an easily uh, afforded and readily available commodity. So a sweetener in a cocktail would have been a special um, treat 
both for the gentlemen and probably for the ladies as well. If we remember that ladies were prohibited from enjoying the cocktails, suppose they did get to sip the gentlemen's drink a bit and might be pleasantly surprised by its sweetness, reminding them of some of the confectionaries they enjoyed. Um, so now to turn to the transatlantic um, movement. If we remember that our Gilded Age in France was called the Belle Epoque, the beautiful epic, epoch, um, time of, of, of being, and in the UK it was the Edwardian period uh, as Queen Victoria's son Edward VII uh, presided uh, first as, as crown prince and then uh, uh, as, as king. And he was a, um, uh, a fancy dresser and he liked his beverages. So, so cocktails to America uh, came back and forth on the Cunard liners. If we look at the, at the menus, cocktail menus, wines, liqueurs, and cocktails, they were there on the White Star liners, and of course White Star was a, a Titanic ship. Uh, Cunard, White Star, back and forth across the oceans all the time, uh, uh, and cocktails served. But the, the wealthy, the ultra-wealthy of the Gilded Age United States, of course, traveled internationally. Uh, in the springtime, Mrs. Astor and her friends would journey across the Great Pond uh, to Paris to be fitted for Worth gowns, couturier gowns for the next season. Uh, and the gentlemen went as well. And so in England, in Paris, uh, in Paris first, uh, to enjoy the cocktails of the French Belle Epoque, the beautiful uh, era that France found itself in. And then off to uh, England, perhaps, to visit friends in London and the country houses. Uh, and, and there again, that's Edwardian uh, England, named for the son of Queen Victoria, Edward VII, who was the crown prince and then became as we know, the king. He was a real dandy in dress uh, and loved, loved the, the, uh, the nightlife, the ladies, and the drinking. Uh, and so there was a kind of, uh, we could say, a golden triangle uh, across the Atlantic, France, the United Kingdom, and the newly ultra-rich formerly colonial United States. And the, the, we know that, for, for instance, that many of the impecunious great landowners in England um, yearned to marry off their sons to wealthy American heiresses, as was the case with Consuela Vanderbilt, who married the Duke of Marlborough and became the Duchess of Marlborough, and her dowry funded Marlborough's um, great estates. So we had money and power, land and technology, all merging in this cocktail era of the Gilded Age here, the Edwardian period in England, and the Belle Epoque in France, and the 
the great ocean liners, Cunard and White Star, had their own menus of their cocktails um, uh, to be enjoyed during the crossing, uh, unless you needed, say, <coughs> beef broth or chicken broth because you were, um, you were a bit indisposed uh, in, the, in the tossing seas. But normally you sailed when the seas were good, for you, uh, and in your suite, uh, you enjoyed uh, as you did at the in the saloons uh, on board. So the the cocktails flowed on Cunard and White Star liners, and as we know, White Star was the line of the Titanic. But we'll not get into that today. Mm. Well, I enjoy drinking on boats, and so I don't see any reason why the Victorians and Edwardians wouldn't also have enjoyed drinking on boats. And I, I like this idea of the Golden Triangle. I really do see a lot of influences, uh, especially, you know, it, it crosses the line from culture into the art world as well. You know, we mentioned Edgar Allan Poe earlier, who was... Um, sort of reviled by some of his American contemporaries. And, and yet he was actually a great inspiration for a lot of the surrealist French poetry in the Belle Epoque that very much put drinking at the forefront. We have Arthur Rimbaud, we have Baudelaire. These people are famous for their enjoyment of absinthe you know, but whether whether it was uh, whether it, absinthe was in its uh, good graces uh, in the good graces of the the French government or the ill graces, depending on what time period specifically you were talking about, but yeah, certainly. And 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 one of the things that strikes me is you know vacationing in other countries. This idea uh, that has become so commonplace today. What what are we all complaining about during COVID? We're complaining that we haven't been able to stretch our legs. We haven't been able to jump on a plane and have a nice trip to Europe or perhaps somewhere further afield like South America, the Caribbean, Asia. Uh, it makes sense that during these early days when only the richest of the rich could afford to go on a holiday for weeks or months at a time and take the take the time that it took to traverse the Atlantic on a steamship, it makes sense that they would have brought back from their travels things that seemed foreign and new and delicious. And, you know, since we've noted that these trends tend to run downhill from the very wealthiest to the perhaps more working class, it makes sense that this is where some of the great experimentation with the liqueurs and the, the the different spirits, whether we're talking about scotch from Scotland or the grape-based distillates from France or, or further beyond, would have begun. So, so it really is important to me that despite the fact that we think of the cocktail as an American invention, it was an American invention that traveled and it first traveled on the backs and in the minds of these ultra-wealthy People. So to me, that's one of the great values that this that this book really shines a light on is that the cocktail wasn't something that was content to stay here in America. It very much had legs and those legs not only led it away from us, but it led the cocktail back to us in different surprising and new formats. And that's probably the most important thing that I wanted to, to underscore that, that I think your book does a really great job of illustrating. Amen to that. And let's remember ocean-going yachts. 
steam yachts that uh, that also crossed the oceans. So, uh, and would ply the Mediterranean. So we had the great liners, and we had the ocean-going yachts, and also uh, serving exactly the the cosmopolitan, not the drink, but the internationalism, Eric, that you've that you've so well just just outlined for us. Well, Cecilia, this has been wonderful. Um, despite some of the t- the tech issues that I'm that I'm sure our editor will uh, will graciously edit out as she always does, but uh, I wanted to ask if there's anything else that that you think I've overlooked here uh, that you really want to share with our listeners about the book. And of course, uh, before we wrap up, we'll we will share with them exactly how best to get their copy. Well, let me just say this about my book, Gilded Age Cocktails history, lore, and recipes from America's golden age, and that is the golden age of cocktails. Um, I noted that uh, yesterday on Amazon, there were three very gracious reviews, one of, one of which said, history and hooch, what a great combination. Uh, and I would simply, I suppose this is my plug, if you're going to do a book, you have to feel that you're contributing to a conversation that's already underway. And Wondrich and and Green and and the others um, uh, have done such a terrific job. But I thought there would be a cultural dimension, a historical dimension uh, to these drinks that I'm equipped to bring to to, to the I and the mind, uh, so that the cocktails themselves uh, are not just isolated drinks, but are part of a whole cultural evolution of the United States. And that's what I especially wanted to show, that they're in a context of culture that is changing, evolving, and they're part of it. One of the things that I find with both academic texts and non-academic texts written by people in academia is that very often the quoting feels a little bit stilted or perhaps a little bit dry and gritty relative to the rest of of the book. And Wondrich, of course, is a master at taking incredible quotes and placing them in in the perfect context. And I I think that you do a wonderful job in a very different way. You're you're quoting from slightly different sources. You're quoting from sources that were orbiting the cocktail rather than from, you know, perhaps uh, extensively from Jerry Thomas himself, for example. But that one of the things that I love about the book is just the, the wonderful and quotable quality of the, the selections that you take from other people's words and and it's they're, they're uh, sometimes funny, sometimes thought provoking, but always it gives you it doesn't give you an overview necessarily so much as it does a core sample. Every time I run into one of those quotes, I feel like I'm drilling down into a core sample of what was actually going on at the time. And so I think that is one of the best parts about Gilded Age cocktails for me is that it doesn't just stay at the 30,000 foot view. It drills down and you get almost to eavesdrop on some of the things that these people were saying. And I think to me that really paints a full and robust picture. So thank you for all the work that you did in putting this book together. Thank you for that compliment. So Cecilia, uh, do you have a, a few minutes here for a couple of quick lightning round questions? Absolutely, absolutely. 
All right, let's start it off with this one. What is your favorite cocktail? Because we know that, that you came up with the idea for this book over cocktails. And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that maybe has more recently been something you've been playing around with? Well, let me say this. Decades ago, when I first had a cocktail, it was the Alexander. Oh, wonderful. Now, and I'm in the South, I'm in South of the Mason-Dixon line, and I used to be a Scotch drinker for sure, single malts. Now I am a bourbon gal, and the old-fashioned is my favorite drink, but it has to be macerated, that orange and the, and the bitters in there, and terrifically clear ice. And I will say, if I am served an old-fashioned and it is crystal clear, I know that it's been syruped and no real orange has faced a muddler at the bottom of the glass. The best old-fashioned I've ever had was at the Parker Hotel on West 56th Street in New York City about a year or two ago. Oh, my God. So that's my current fave. But in the summertime, uh, the G&Ts um, with, uh, with a good lime slice in a hot summer day, gin and tonics. Beautiful. Beautiful. Two of my favorites as well. Now, uh, is you're you're more of a consumer. We have a lot of distillers and indus, heavy industry folks here on the podcast, but I'm actually really curious about your answer to this question. Are there any products or trends in the spirits and cocktail space that you feel are perhaps underrated or underappreciated at the moment? I would like to see, uh, as a consumer, uh, a greater uh, advancing across the bar of different bitters. Um, it's well known that we're kind of to down to uh, Angostura and Peugeot, but I'm thinking, looking back at all the, those, those, you know, that arpeggio of bitters uh, from the past, what might be done? What might be brought forward? Um, maybe I'm just not at the right at the right cocktail bar, uh, but um, I would like to to be able to sample some new craft cocktails that were more adventurous with the bitters. Mm. Well, we'll have to uh, talk after this recording, and I'll get your address, and we'll send you some of the bitters that we make here at Modern Bar Cart, and you can you can play around with those at your next cocktail hour. Woo. Woo! All right. Let me mention one cocktail I was able to have in southeastern um, Alaska. I had a cocktail made with a, with a chunk of ice from a glacier. And it was crystal clear, and the bartender had made it up, and he called it a Blue Glacier cocktail. It was his own cocktail, and that was a sweet moment to be, to be drinking ice from centuries, millennia ago. Oh, yeah, that was good. But Eric, you might, uh, I think you might want to ask me something about what do I think might be underappreciated right now um, and I've been thinking about this since since your invitation came to um, to to appear. I think that these days, and maybe COVID will actually be a help. That people who are enjoying a cocktail need to give themselves 
the opportunity to really focus on that drink. Often in the background, there is a screen, something streaming, maybe it's a TV show, or in a public restaurant, maybe there's a screen with some sports event going on, even with the sound off, it's distracting. And if people are enjoying one another's company, and finally, as we open up from COVID, um, we're able to go out and enjoy, uh, and in conversation, it's as if the cocktails that we so carefully order, selecting, uh, become kind of subsidiaries to the social event. So whatever the bartender may have done to really put something special together for us and, and have it served to us, and too much time we spend chatting and sipping mindlessly. Uh, I think we need to pay attention to the look of the drink, the stemware or the, or the glass, um, if it's an old-fashioned glass, if it's a highball glass, whatever it is, the, sort of the miracle of glass itself uh, that lets us see through it. I mean, I think we need to awaken our senses to the drinks we're having and let ourselves have the full experience. That's what I think we need to be doing. Mm. Mindful cocktails, cocktail as primary rather than subsidiary, and cocktail, perhaps most importantly, as as a combinatory miracle, not just of spirits and other ingredients, but also of context, set, setting, and service fashion. Uh, you know, with the glass, I, I love that, and and it's a it's a real shame that right now we as Americans are in a really tricky situation with glassware in particular. It's very difficult to import glassware right now because there are so many ships stuck in port and and so many other things that desperately need to be imported, like plywood of all things. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I agree, and 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 it's it certainly seems like a real opportunity. So that that was a wonderful answer. And it's just to say to go into a bar and expect a nice cocktail and you order the drink and it gets served to you in a plastic glass and already you are defeated. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. Now, if, if you could have a cocktail with anyone past or present, and I, I, I think that you will have a lovely answer to this because you have so much uh, spent so much time studying uh, the Gilded Age, but uh, anyone past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture of your ideal cocktail. Well, this was a terrible question to, have, to be asked because the, the whole, you know, presidents, um, popular entertainers that just go through my mind, through my mind, but you know what? For this topic and because of the importance of this topic, I would like to sit down with Professor Jerry Thomas, who invented the modern cocktail. I would like to have him come out behind the bar with his diamond studs, his fingers flashing with diamonds, uh, and to sit down and talk about the different bars where he has served. I would like to hear him talk about inventing that blue blazer um, of his. I would like to, to have him open up about the deeper background. His parents hoped he would become a minister. Um, 
what was that about when instead he went to the to the cask and the bottle um, and made himself in a sense the crown prince of of the new invention through the gilded age he was born I think well before the Civil War um, what would he say where I would like to sit down with him would be in the bar near Phineas T. Barnum's museum in New York, down the street there. And I would like to have him in his full regalia of, of diamonds and, and tell me everything, a really true confessions, so I could then tell everybody else what he said. <laughs> uh, what a historian, what a historian you are. Uh, yes, and, and for, for those of you who uh, might not have, uh, not, might not be as well read in, uh, in the works of Jerry Thomas, uh, he did not invent blue sports jackets. The blue blazer is, is, a, is a cocktail lit on fire and poured between uh, several, several silver cups and then uh and then dazzlingly served to you still aflame so uh for anyone who's not familiar with that please do take some time and look it up it's uh certainly a spectacle and and uh definitely take some time to learn about the professor jerry thomas himself uh now here's the last question uh do you have any unusual or controversial beliefs in the spirits or cocktail world You know, I've written a book about Jack London, and London is always on my mind. He's a writer whose importance is understood everywhere except in the United States of America. And the reason here that he is almost a secondary um, figure is that he was a a self-proclaimed socialist, a socialist. And what he meant by that is he wanted good schools. He wanted people to be paid decently. Uh, he wanted workplaces to be safe. Uh, he wanted people to be able to take a vacation. Jack wrote a memoir. It's a wonderful memoir called John Barleycorn. And it's the saga of his capture, finally, in his late 30s by alcohol. He became an alcoholic uh, and started to order enormous batches of pre-mixed cocktails from Oakland sent to him at his his ranch uh, north of San Francisco in the Sonoma area. Well, Jack London, it was told to me, and, and I don't discount this, there's a, a musician named Jeff Faulkner up in the Sonoma area who with his band used to rehearse in the cottage where Jack London and his wife Charmian, it was his second wife, uh, lived for a good many years. And Falconer is not a paranormal guy, and I'm not usually a paranormal person, except there have been so many coincidences that it's hard to, to think otherwise. Anyway, Jeff Falconer was telling one rehearsal day in that cottage and they're in the middle of rehearsal, and he's on his instrument. And he said, this face emerged, and it was him. It was him. He said, I have no other way to explain it. And he looked at me, and he seemed to approve that it was okay to be there in his space. And then he disappeared. 
and I listened to what what Jeff Falconer had to say. He wrote a song about Jack London, and he's written many songs, and that song is just incredible, and I hope he records it. Now, let me tell you that very recently, I was thinking of editing uh, Jack London's memoir, um, John Barleycorn. My printer, beside my home computer, my printer does not print in color. Just got a black and white um, well in there with carbon dust, whatever it is. Suddenly, and I was not on the keyboard typing, I was sitting there thinking about what I was going to do. The printer started up and out came this page in color with a Jack London heading with a picture of him and with Call of the Wild um, as, a, as a book, of course his most famous book. I cannot account for that, for that printout page. Only one page. The printer, was, was it on? Yes. Was it in use? No. Was my keyboard in use? No. Why did that happen? That's a lovely story, and and uh, I wasn't aware of uh, John Barleycorn as as a text. I was uh, aware of I think the trifecta of the the three most famous: uh, Call the Wild, White Fang, Typhoon, uh, uh, being yes. the three that I'm yeah. familiar with. Eric, you'll really, uh, especially uh, um, with with this sort of a gig, you'll really you'll really like it. I wish I had a spare copy to send you, but I will um, get a copy and uh, send it your way. All right. Well, that seems like a like a perfect swap for some bitters. And uh, Cecilia, I, I just want to ask how our listeners should best go about uh, securing a copy of Gilded Age Cocktails. When is it officially being released? And uh, is there any way to pre-order this book? It, 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 it exists. It came out on May 4. Uh, Amazon has got it. Some bookstores have it, but it can easily be got. It's 20 bucks. Nice gifts, shall I say. Uh, I'll tell you this. This is a book that was originally scheduled to come out last holiday season, um, 2020. It was held back because of COVID. So the publisher said, let's bring it out in spring, spring cocktails. Uh, and it's a good time since we're opening up. And the sequel, Jazz Age Cocktails, same sort of thing, uh, will pop out next holiday season. But I'm kind of old school, uh, so email is the best contact uh, information. And uh, my name, just so you know, it's C-E-C-E-L-I-A dot T as in Tom, I-C-H-I at Vanderbilt, the university, and it's B-I-L-T dot E-D-U. And that's the best contact. Beautiful. And uh, certainly, many thanks to the uh, team at Vanderbilt, specifically Brian, for helping us make this podcast a reality. And uh, Cecilia, it's been a, a great pleasure to have you on. You're a wonderful storyteller. Uh, you've obviously spent a lot of time and passion researching this, so I really do encourage our listeners to go out, pick up their copy of Gilded Age Cocktails, and to, of course, keep their eyes open later this year for the sequel jazz age cocktails so cecilia tishy thank you 
so much for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thank you, Eric. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Gilded Age Historical and Cocktail Insights, courtesy of Cecilia Tishy, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.